Hello and welcome to You Don't Know Lit. My name is Nick Argyris and today I'm looking for a, a book and to help me are two high school English teachers, Ian and Joe. <laughs> Boy, this intro is just getting easier and easier for you. <laughs> Litheads, I'd like you Caring to play down. our game. Play along with us. This week the game is entitled, Does Nick Know the Theme? No, it's a lit, I think it's a Lithead recommendation, which is great. Thank you, Lithead. Uh, <laughs> let me just find her name. <laughs> Um, <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> You're listening to a decombustion live on air. Um, In Nick's process. You know, he's been trying to pair away, right? Like Sigma Six sort of stuff. And he's been trying to pair away, pair away, pair away. Um, and now he's just showing up cold. That's amazing. A French person recommended this theme? No, no. The author is French, Joe. <laughs> Hold on, I'll find it. This I'll is find a tire it. fire. Hey, um, Joe, who are you? Hi, my name's Joe Holshu. I'm a high school English teacher. And Nick, if you're looking for a book this week, I've read all sorts of books. Like, do you want like a science fiction book? Like no, a space I want the opera? one that we talked about last time. I've read like all the Kurt Vonnegut books no. uh, like I was, and some documentaries. Um, if you are looking for a book by Annie Ernaux, recent Nobel uh, Prize winner in literature, I... Uh, I actually did accidentally read a book this week. I uh, by Annie or No called the Passions. I wasn't supposed to. I was just oh, supposed sweet. to bring like stuff about Annie or No, but it was what? like sixty pages long, so I just read it. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Do we have a do we have an an accidental an accidental competition? Litheads, this was supposed to be a cop out, but I only have like two or three things to actually say about my book, so I'm happy to just insert them randomly throughout okay. the, throughout the thing. Okay. Uh, bonjour, Nick. Salute, Joe. Uh, Comment ça va, Litheads. This week, my name is Professor Dr. Ian DeYoung. Uh, I am not a Nobel Prize laureate. Sorry to all all of you who are expecting that. This week, I did bring The Years. The Years. Which is a very French French book by a very Nobel Prize winning author, Annie Ernaux. May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely <laughs> enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. <laughs> who, who, who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. <laughs>, 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 <laughs> Do you guys want some facts about the Nobel Prize? Yeah. Are they fast facts? They're pretty fast facts. I'll just break some off for you. In order to win the Nobel Prize in literature, you have to be nominated twice. And I don't mean by two people in the same year, but the first time that you ever get nominated for the prize, uh, you are not eligible to actually win it that year. You'll be considered. They will read your stuff, but you will not win the prize that year. It is the second time that you get nominated and beyond that you are eligible. Is that an an unspoken rule or is Mm. that like a hard and fast rule? No, it's like on their Wikipedia page. It's it's not like a coincidence. They're like, no, you got to be nominated once. You got to like ante up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, there's been some Nobel prize drama over the years. Um, there was a bunch of, once you are on the Nobel prize committee, you are on it for life. Uh, you until recently were not allowed to resign from the Nobel prize committee. It was a lifetime appointment. Now, can you, sorry, can you choose to, can you choose to be on it or are you just notified? Yes, you've been drafted to the committee. (laughs) It's a draft. I imagine the responsibilities aren't, Uh, you know, it's not too tall of a ticket. No, but I've read, read this, uh, about other prize committees that when you're in like prize mode 
you reading a ton of stuff by a lot of people. Um, I read an article, an article by a guy who was judging a major prize. And he said, basically he was reading three or four long books of literary fiction every week. I mean, it sounds like it's probably all he's got going on. That's true. I mean, like, he probably doesn't so have to also go work at Tesco. Like that. Yeah. No, that's a good call. Um, Ian, tell me who is Annie or no? Well, I think Joe's going to tell you about Annie or no. She is a French author. She um, is, um, as many of these folks are, she is um, up there. She, she is not a young person. Uh, she's been writing for quite some time. Her first book. Is she still spry? She is. Uh, well, I couldn't speak to her spryness. Her, her, or is she, is she fragile? Her prose is spry. I'll, I will say that. Her prose. Ooh, <laughs> oh, that is the most Ian. pretentious sentence I have Very ever spoken aloud. Good job. One pretentious point. Whenever I hear the word spry, I think of the, the term spring chicken because it starts with the same spur. Mm, I think of the soda Sprite. Oh, good, good. Uh, this has been an episode of or uh, 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 an <laughs> this has been sponsored by our Word, Word Association, brought to you by the Coca Cola Company. <laughs> uh, I can tell you about the story if you'd like. Uh, yeah. So, how did you pick the story? Because she's got a lot of books, and there's not one that's actually specifically, uh, you know, the winner or nominated. Right. right. Yeah. So the the Nobel Prize is funky in that you don't get it for a book you you um, you read. You get it for a whole body of work. And so, mm-hmm. yes, I, I went, uh, lit heads will just part the, part the curtain a little bit, show you behind the scenes. Uh, don't oh. trip over that cable over there. It's, it's uh, definitely an OSHA violation, but yeah, you know, uh, just, this is Mike. Uh, yeah. Mike is our stage manager. Um, <laughs> he brings the donuts on Thursdays. It's a great time. Thanks Mike. Uh-huh. No, Mike, you cannot get on Mike. No. Uh, well, I went on the Wikipedia page cause I had nothing. I had no idea about her whatsoever. And Wikipedia said, um, here are a list of her books and they all looked very French and some of them had French titles as in they weren't translated. The titles weren't translated into English. And I realized she's writing in French. I'm going to need to find a book, which is, um, in, in English. So, uh, I did some searching around. People were saying this was her best book. Um, it's also been recently translated into English, which helps. So I kind of went in cold and I'm super glad I chose this one because it's kind of stands out in, in her work. So is there a translator? Yeah. And there's a really interesting, I didn't get, I, I read this book kind of on a deadline that had a lot of other stuff going on. Um, so you did your own translating. <laughs> no. So, so I didn't get to spend the time that I wanted to with the translator's note at the end, but there is a, a big old, a chunky translator's note, which goes into kind of some of the, some of the French stuff that she does and the task of the translator to uh, turn this, very artistic French into something equivalent in English. It's not a one-to-one. It's not like, it's not like just taking, taking the words and, and running them through Google translate. When you, when you tell students, when you teach students about quoting versus paraphrasing, quoting obviously is you just take their words and you put them in quotation marks. When you paraphrase, you're taking their idea and you're putting it in your own words. So the intent of paraphrase is the, the ideas are the same, but the words are different. And there are a couple of different ways to paraphrase. One is to swap word for word. Um, so if, if it's, uh, if, if the phrase, if the sentence is the cat ate the mouse, you might say the feline devoured the rodent. Um, but that's kind of a, cr- a crappy way of, of paraphrasing. A better way of paraphrasing um, it would be to, to get the idea without, without just kind of a one-to-one word. Translation is much more about good paraphrase because you're, you're maintaining the meaning but you're also trying to maintain the art of it. I could never do it. It sounds incredibly hard. Ian, can you please take 30 seconds and tell me what your book is about? 
I'll take less than 30 seconds. Ready? All right. Ready? Here we go. Here we go. A woman grows up in post-World War II France and grows old in modern France. That's right. way less than 30 that's seconds. That's the story. That's like, that's it. The Joe, story he's is got 20 seconds left. Do you oh. want to tell me what your book is about? Yeah. Annie or No has an affair um, with a married oh. man and huh. tells a kind of a 60-page recollection of what it felt like to have an affair <laughs> with a married man. Wow. Which like is physically? Well, not that'll be your time. Not always. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, my my story. I, I was I was trying to make a point before you cut me off. My story is extremely simple. Like what happens is not particularly dramatic, but she tells it so deftly and she uses mm. these details so effectively that you can't put it down. It's it's a weird reading experience because you keep expecting there to be like, and then there were lizard people, but they're never mm. lizard people. There are zero lizard people in this book. There are zero murders. It's just kind of like. We, that sounds very French, right? Like you keep, you keep expecting an escalation. So is it, it's a little culture. It's all culture. It's, it's, it's all, it's all culture. It's all like this, the, the experiences that this woman has as she, as she grows up and grows old. And it's almost like Erno is daring you to like daring you to keep reading. She's like, yeah, you are not like, she's like, you're not going to get a, like a, a saucy affair here. This is going to be like, I'm telling you the story like Joe's book of this woman. We're going to, we're going to learn about her life and what it felt like to grow old in, in yeah. the modern world. And you're going to like it. Well, and the only thing I would add to that about my book is my book is not saucy. My book is just her describing what it felt like. Like the first line of my book is something along the lines of from September of last year, I did nothing but wait for a man. Right. And then she describes like what it felt like to kind of just be waiting for this man to call and how totally enraptured she was, how she like wouldn't do anything besides go to work because she was just waiting for the phone to ring and wanted to be there when it did. Um, it, it is not sexy or sensuous. It is very much like this is what my emotional state yeah. was. It's psychological. Yeah. This is how I thought and felt when I was having this affair. Joe, when did, when did she write this book? I believe it was 1991. I actually had a hard, surprisingly hard time tr finding this because there was translations that happened in different years. But I believe in French, it was written in 91. Ian, was your question, why did she write this book? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I mean, no, but, but this is, this is super interesting because, because uh, one of her big things is autobiography and like what a bold flex mm -hmm. to say, I'm going to build my entire career on autobiographical writing. She is not. <laughs> my life mine. is so interesting. Yeah, right. Let's be clear. Annie Erno has not written one autobiography, as many of us do. She has written, I think most of her work is personal autobiographical. Well, and like, to be clear, she hasn't led like this crazy slapdash life. Like she hasn't, like she's not jumping off of buildings or anything right, like right. that. Like she is this woman that grew up in Normandy. Her parents were working class. She went to college. She got a literature degree. She was a teacher and then a professor and she was publishing books this whole time. But she writes all of her books about like her parents' social progression, what it was like to be a teenager in Normandy, her failing marriage, right? Like this is the stuff that she minds and people like in like people in france are like oh yeah she's our literary doyen like like she's she represents us and it's like incredible. that is what it feels like to be french and it's incredible
Erno writes this book, The Years, in the third person. So it's fictional, but it's not. So she is she is doing autobiography here. This is this is her. She's recounting her growing up. It's filtered through her memory, so it's indistinct. It it's it's kind of like we've talked about fictional but true. Like Truman Capote's In Cold Blood is a nonfiction mm-hmm. novel. We talked about how like Tom Wolf and the right stuff, they try to make truth um, interesting and engaging the way fiction is. So this is very much in that same vein of like, yeah, it's true, but she it, it's it's fictional. It's it's a novel uh, as well. So what's 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 she trying to do then? What's the whole point? Well, okay. She's interested. Uh, is it about life? It's no, life. I think it's about people. Life. I think it's about people. L- life, love, loss. No, love, love, love loss. No, it's not love, love, love loss. Lost. <laughs> okay, so you know when authors try and do that psychological thing where they take you inside the mind of inside the twisted mind of Christian Bale in American of Psycho. Jeffrey Dahmer of Jeffrey. Yeah, right. But this is, and and the 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 promise of those books, those psychological fiction books, is that even though this is not true, we will attain some degree of truth through it. Um, or we'll understand some degree of truth about humanity. Mm -hmm. What she does is she says, I'm going to take this same mode of investing, investigating the psychological development of a woman um, from like the early 1950s through the early 2000s. But it's going to be me. I'm going to know. I'm going to know what the way I felt. But she doesn't talk about herself in the first person. She doesn't say, I did this, then I did this. She says, she, she talks about herself in the third person. So there's this distancing and there's this kind of preservation of the idea that she, she's, she's stepping away from the I, this is the first book where she, she adopts this third person. She's stepping away from, I had this affair. I jumped out of this airplane and it's, it's sort of, it's distanced. It's, it's almost journalistic in some ways. Yeah. You know, when I was reading her, no, just when I was reading her this week, I think the number one thing that's going to be hard to get across here is how very different it is from almost anything that I've read yes. before this. Yes. Um, and, and just, I, I was looking at, you know, when you win the Nobel prize, they reach out to friends and people that you've worked with and other literary people. And they're like, Hey, Annie or no, just won the Nobel prize. Like, what do you think? And people say laudatory things. People say kind things. And the thing that kept coming up is people are like, Annie or no, didn't try to fit into existing definitions of literature. Like the thing that sets her apart is she looked around at the literary landscape and said, I think I can do something different and has been successfully doing something different for, I mean, for, for 50, 60 years now. I mean, she's 82 years old. Yeah, she started in the 70s. So it's, it's 50 years. Can I break off some more Nobel Prize facts for you? Mm-hmm. All right, perfect. Um, Nobel, uh, Annie or no is the 16th French writer to win the Nobel Prize. Um, the Nobel Prize in literature has been around since something like 1901. Um, the French, by the way, are leading uh, the race. Um, if this is the Olympic gold medal, the, the French are in first. America, because of course you care, we are tied in second place Sweet. with us and the United Kingdom. Great. Um, Great. So she's the 16th French writer. How far behind? Uh, we're, t- we're six, uh, we're, with this, we're six behind. So we have won 10 apiece, us in the United Kingdom and the French have won 16. Interesting. Hey Joe, where's this, uh, 
Pulitzer Prize uh, organization. Where are they located? Yeah, so good question. It's in Sweden, and some um, famously neutral Sweden. So actually, yes, famously neutral Sweden. How interesting! Well, it is kind of interesting because a couple things happened because of this. Number one, Scandinavian writers are probably disproportionately represented (laughs) on the Nobel Prize winners. (laughs) Okay, this is like this is like um, in in uh, the Great American Sport of Baseball. Um, there is a, a baseball glove company called Rawlings and they distribute the, the company gives out awards every year um, called the gold gloves. And these are for the team, the players mm-hmm. that do the best defense, the best defensive play on the field, catching balls, throwing balls, tagging players and things, whatever you do, you know, the baseball thing, <laughs> yeah, you know, but the main mm-hmm. thing, the <laughs> company is based in St. Louis, famously the home of the insufferable St. Louis Cardinals and their insufferable fans. And when you run the numbers, Rawlings gives way more gold gloves to St. Louis players than to (laughs) anybody else. St. Louis has like lapped the field multiple times. So we've got a Rawlings situation on our hands. Yeah, that, that's exactly what's going on here. There is a Scandinavian uh, bias in the Nobel Prize. So French has, France has done well, not a Scandinavian country. America has done well. Um, the UK has done well, but proportionately um, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, etc. have best. done <laughs> extremely well. Um, other things. Oh, she's the seventh. She's the 16th French writer. She's only the 17th woman to have ever won the prize. So in 122 years that they've been giving this thing out, um, 16 French people have won it. 17 women have run it, have won it. And it's, it's something that felt important to her, um, in her speeches afterwards and her things afterwards, she really talked about the responsibility of having won a Nobel prize and how she really felt like it was her job to advocate for women everywhere, which when you look at what she's writing about, um, it's a lot of what she's been doing, but she feels that she now must be a more vocal advocate with this platform. So what you're saying is she didn't pull a Bob Dylan about it. She didn't give it back. No, she didn't give it back. Um, a couple of people have for have refused the Nobel Prize. I think Rob Dylan eventually accepted he his, was, probably when he, he found out it came with a million dollars. He was very hipster about the whole thing, and then he compared himself to Shakespeare. That was like six years ago, and I'm still angry at Bob Dylan because I love his music, <laughs> but he was a total horse's ass about that whole thing. We know you are. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre did, uh, he, he did the actual Dylan thing, and he actually wow. refused the Nobel Prize, uh, which, you know, is... Be pretty on brand. Um, something about nihilism, you know, something about like none of this matters. <laughs> Only other things I've got a little bit Nobel Prize controversy for you. Uh, for you. So when you are on the Nobel Committee, you are elected or appointed for life. You cannot resign. The problem is, is over the years, people have tried to resign. Um, first of all, when what Ayatollah Khomeini uh, declared a fatwa against Solomon Rushdie, a bunch of people said like, hey, we have to like take a stance against this. We have to say that we support Solomon Rushdie. We don't have to give him the Nobel Prize or anything, <laughs> but we have to fall, come down on his side. And the Nobel Prize committee, famously neutral, would not do it. And three people of the 12 person quorum just stopped showing up for meetings. They're like, this is ridiculous. It caused a problem, not right away, but in 2017, there was a man named Jean-Claude Arnault, who I uh, was not familiar with. He was married to one of the members of the Nobel Prize. He got in trouble for like essentially a history of sexual uh, misconduct Uh against women. People felt like his wife should resign from the Nobel Committee. 
She refused and three more people resigned or stepped away from the Nobel Committee, which meant that in that year, they did not have a quorum, so they could not re-award the prize. Um, They had to hold off on it until the next year. So in, I believe, 2019, two Nobel Prizes in literature were given out, one for 2019 and one for the year before. What possible, possible reason could there be for not having terms for something like this or not making a way for people to exit. Uh, the only way you're going to leave is if you storm out dramatically because of your <laughs> personal beliefs. Well, and after the Jean-Claude Arnault thing, um, the King of Sweden stepped in uh, because apparently he's the man who's in charge of all this. He issued <laughs> this a, a dictum and he said, guys, 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 you can resign. It's cool. <laughs> wow. So you are now allowed to resign. Let me kind of clarify my book through uh, one of its dominant motifs. The motif uh. is, is, as you know, because Nick is like, oh, Nick hates it when we talk about literature. Please tell me you don't say that to your students ever. The dominant <laughs> motif is the photograph. The dominant motif is actually the photograph. Oh. So she takes, she filters, she filters the story of this woman who uh, is growing up in post-World War II France and kind of lives through the lives through the, the remaining decades through through today um book was published in 2008 like this woman grows old in as the world kind of moves into modernity and post-modernity and she does this through snapshots literal snapshots not pictures in the book she describes them which is an interesting choice i mean, she could have put replicas like representations of these pictures in the book but she doesn't she's like i'm gonna do a word picture of the photographs and the photographs are not key moments in this character's life this character which is also her but they are documenting the person at various important points in their growing old so she doesn't have like a picture of me when i when i boxed with that kangaroo but she has a picture of her kind of posed out in front of the garden and then she describes how she boxed with the kangaroo so we have this Sorry, is there kangaroo boxing no, in this? No, unfortunately. Oh. Um, okay. There, there's so a lot of really entertaining. There's a lot of teen angst though. Um, and yeah. that's you got that well, going yeah. for it. So so she she introduces these these photos and um they are kind of the the recurring motif and she talks about the woman in the photo and describes the woman in the photo like now she is like a kid with skinned knees. Now she is a, a young teenager um who is uh, uh, anxious about going off to high school. Now, this this photograph is taken um, of her and her classmates, and we can see her um, turning her, turning her, putting her hands behind her back because she's self-conscious about being lower class and having dirty hands. So we get to know this, <laughs> this figure through the photographs. But then she does this thing where she kind of zooms in on the photographs and then extrapolates from them. Uh, which brings us to this week's trope of the week. Um, there needs to be more Joe mouth noises. So the trope of the week is <laughs> the Ken Burns effect. You guys ever Ooh. seen a ever ever seen a documentary by Ken Burns? Yes, they're wonderful. Yes. They are. They're great. Ken, they are wonderful. Ken, if you're listening, we'd love for you to write a book and then come on our podcast. Um, do you have any guesses? Given what I was saying about photographs, do you have any guesses what the Ken Burns effect might be? 
Uh, yeah, I super know exactly what it is. Okay, <laughs> tell us. What is the Ken Burns <laughs> like? Squarely fits in my wheelhouse. It is, it is. Uh, for my professional wheelhouse. Um, so that would be when um, there's a picture and it moves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so that's well, the Ken picture, Burns, baby. <laughs> yeah, like the camera slowly pans over a picture or like yeah. slowly zooms in or slowly zooms out while somebody narrates. I've actually heard a name for this. There's like kind of an alliterative name for this, isn't it? Like like pictures and narrators. No, that can't be it. Snapshots and tiaras. Mm, it'll come to me. Uh, All right, keep us posted on that yeah, one. Joe. Uh, look for our updates right. throughout the episode. Uh, the Ken, yeah, the Ken Burns effect is um, it's usually when you've got uh, limited moving media in a documentary. You've got talking heads, but that's not very exciting. You're not going to have a lot of archival stuff. So in older in documentaries of older things, when I mean, you've just got s- still images, um, this is a way to add dynamism to your documentary. Um, your your camera pans, your camera zooms. Usually it picks out some detail. So sometimes Ken Burns, like if he's talking about the Civil War, will start kind of at one end of a line of soldiers and will move along the line and will come to rest on the dude that we're talking about. Um, that kind of thing. So um, this this is generally in documentaries. Um, and the word documentary is interesting because documenting, uh, recording something that is purportedly true or, or factual. But this novel does the, it's, it's the Ken Burns effect. It uses the Ken Burns effect, but with words on word pictures. So she draws these, the, she, she, she describes these photographs and she dwells on the photograph and then she zooms in on a specific part of the photograph and uses that detail to instruct us about humanity, um, about this character, about culture, about any number, of, about gender, about class. Um, it's just super, super trippy. Joe says it's hard to, to, to articulate the way this works, but it's super trippy. She is refusing to put pictures in her book. And yet this yeah. is, uh, well, he answered my next question. <laughs> absolutely. This is absolutely a picture book, but there are no pictures. Yeah. Oh, that's picture the worst book kind of picture pictures. book. I know. I know. Oh, it's, apparently it's, uh, it's called the Ken Burns effect in video editing software suites. Do you guys know oh, this? Really? Like there's buttons in whatever Apple's video. Are editing, you serious? Uh, it's software actually, is. oh my God. The, it's, that's amazing. It's called the Ken Burns effect. And Ken Burns initially uh, rejected this. He's like, hey, I really don't yeah, want my, got it from somebody my else. name used in this. Yeah. And Steve Jobs is like, well, we'll give you a bunch of video hardware and software if you let us use your <laughs> name. So he said, so he said it was fine. <laughs> All right. So just to recap, this is a book about her. Yeah. She tells it in the form of pictures, but there are no pictures. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and instead of pictures, she uses words, <laughs> quote unquote words. You can't see this lit heads. They're huge air quotes. Just the scorn dripping from the air quotes. Try to keep up here, lit heads. She's using words on this one. <laughs> <laughs> unlike, unlike so many. Why do you think, uh, why did she win? You said she's like the voice of France. Is that, or maybe you didn't say those words exactly, but she, she, People have said that she can kind of capture the yeah. culture well, uh, for maybe lack of a better word. What? Uh, why do you think that is? I, so I, th- I think there are two reasons for this. And and Joe, you can you can dive in here as well whenever as you as you. Joe, just add on. a third one on. Yeah, a third yeah, reason. Yep, I'll, I'll be ready with for a third and one. If you guys actually, uh, while we're on the topic of reasons, if you have any raisins, I'm feeling a little bit hungry. So 
I would, okay. I would love some raisins. Um, Joe will also accept raisin facts. <laughs> um, to get the golden raisins, you have to like either irradiate them no, or... No, that's Joe's thing. <laughs> okay, yep. California raisins, one plays a saxophone. That's my raisin fact. Maybe they all play saxophones? I don't really I think remember. they all play the sax, yeah. <laughs> oh, Lidhead's... Um, Excellent, please, Joe. Please okay, if there's two left, Sound Ian. off in the comments about whether or not they all play saxophones. So I think the two, the two reasons are, first of all, yes, this is incredibly efficient and tells like 60 years of a woman's life, 60 years of sort of glimpses of French history, culture, politics... 250 pages. My book is 250 pages long. And I feel like I, I learned so much about French as a result of reading this. And not because she's like, all right, I'm going to sit you down. She's like, she relies on you knowing that there was a guy named Pompidou um, or, you know, what the March 68 um, strike and, and riots were about, which I, I don't, but I kind of get the context clues and I maybe do a little bit of outside research she blends telling you enough that you can figure things out through context with at the same time, kind of taking it for granted that you're, you're, you're smart enough to, to, to play along, to catch up. One of the words, one of the phrases that the Nobel prize committee used to describe her work is clinical acuity, which has a lot of nice hard C's <laughs> in it, but also Jesus, mm-hmm. what are they? Doctors you know, fans? They're fancy well, boys. Very formal stuff, they're but fancy. it's not exhaustive. That's the thing. It's, it sounds no. that that sounded bad, but you're saying it, it's good when she does it. It is good <laughs> and because she, she has a special spin. Yeah. Okay. And, and she's not, it's not a negative thing. It's not, she's not down on it, but she's realistic about it. She's clear eyed. There are experiences she has, which I, I can't identify with. But as she narrates, especially the part where she's narrating the stuff up until the age I am now. 67. Yes, I am 67. Mm-hmm. And when, when she gets to <laughs> year 68, I am out. I'm gone. <laughs> what is <laughs> happening? I'm so lost. Um, <laughs> no, when, when she like, when she narrates, you know, teenage years and looking at her mm-hmm. friends and wanting to be like them, but knowing that she's kind of different and knowing that she's not, not really kind of popular or cool. Um, still trying to imitate fashion, still trying to to fit in, even though she believes she can't. As she narrates being a 20-something, wondering what you're going to do with your life, trying to negotiate like relationships and the new adult self, as she describes especially sort of becoming a 30-something and all of a sudden taking in, uh, paying attention to politics because, well, this is the future and I'm going to be old soon. Like, a lot of this stuff is, I hate this word, but it's relatable. Like she is describing yeah. currents of human development that I recognize. And yeah. I, I, from myself, from my friends, the people I know, people I've seen go through this, but she also uses we. So she says, here's the photograph. O-U-I. She, and I'm not saying like we, like the French way. I'm saying W-E, yeah, we, we, us. Yeah. So she's like, here's the photograph. <laughs> Here's what this person yes. looks like in it. Here's more about this person. And then at some point she always pivots from she did this. She experienced this to we paid more attention. We heard this on the radio. We saw the strikers in the streets. We believe this would happen. And this has such a powerful effect because it brings me along with her. And it makes me kind of her compatriots in growing old in the 1980s, 1990s, when I wasn't. Mm. I was barely even born in the 1990s. So, no, not barely. I was born in the 90s. So, like, um, 
it's a, it's almost an out of body experience because she's describing culture, which is foreign, which is alien in a bunch of different ways, time wise, um, um, location wise. And yet as she grows old, I see her growing old as a person, as a human being. And it's got me freaked out. It's got me shook because I have always kind of argued, you know, the way like where you're that fundamentally affects who you are. I have, I have so little in common with those people because I was born here and raised here in this way. But she taps into something which is, which is more universal. I don't know what to make of it. I'm scared. Ian is scared. Joe, what are you feeling yeah, right now? My other things. So one of the things that you hear in, in the criticism and, and I guess the literature about Annie or no, is that a lot of her work serves to the quote that I saw is departicularize women's experience. And the way that they say that is they say, nice. when you right. read her books, you're scared to recognize yourself because then you'll have to draw your own conclusions about the things that she's writing about. The book that I accidentally read this week, this 60 page book about her <laughs> affair is about a middle-aged woman having a passionate affair with an Eastern European married man. And I know exactly what Ian's talking about because like I at moments could identify myself in the feelings that she had, which is a crazy Joe, thing. Something, like something I tell a country, us your spouse about. Yeah. Well, I, I I've, I've met this Turkish man when she writes about this affair, right? It is very clinical. It's how she felt. It's what her experience is. But there is no moralizing mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. it. Like she yes. never says, I right. felt guilty right. about right. having this affair. There is no judgment it, th that she gives about it, nor does she ever invite judgment on the reader's behalf. It is very straightforward. This is what it feels like. This is what it felt like to me to have an affair with this married man. This is how it totally occupied my mind. This is how it totally occupied my heart. This is how it totally occupied my She's time. She's probably also not saying... And and, and, and I'm like, like, like buttering herself up for it. Right. She's not like, and I was so cool and good for doing this and I was free and it was great. Nope. Nope. She, she never, she's, she's never like, she does not look for excuses to do it either. She's like, it's very much, this is a thing that happened. This is what it felt like. This is how it occupied my time. And when you read it, you like, like as a 37 year old man from Wisconsin, like I get it like oh, i get what the appeal man. is like i get how it feels right Wait, like, what? It, and it's it, <laughs> well, it's this crazy thing so i really really dug it i think it was like we'll put it this way bang for the buck ratio this thing was 60 pages long i don't think anything's gonna stick to my brain like this for that 60 pages in in a long time um only wanted to follow up on a couple other things that ian said uh he says that he she writes for a french audience that's super true most of her books were not even translated into english until she won the nobel prize um now they are all going to be translated into english um, <laughs> Here come ian, the jackals. and uh the california raisins only one of them plays saxophone one has a microphone and then two just seem like they're kind of vibing out like they're just kind of dancing along so um, that's your raisin fact for for the episode Lidhads, if you like nonsense like this, where we bring you the latest in Nobel literature and the latest in California raisins, uh, you can head on over to you don't know lit podcast.com, suggest a theme, suggest a book. There's a big button on top. You can't 
even miss it. Follow us on social. We do all sorts of stuff over there. Nick posts great little stuff uh, that you can share and and like and all that stuff. And tell a bookish friend. Uh, It's probably the number one thing that you can do if you enjoy the show. Lidheads, we love you. Uh, I'm going to read a quote. This is towards the end of the book. So uh, a lot of this book when it's it's when she's younger, I really understood. But she also has this vision of the future um, where she's growing older in the present day or closer to the present day. Um, so this is just a, a passage that um, she kind of blends this does this thing where she blends philosophy or like observations of the world with very specific personal experience. And she imagines um, she imagines sort of this this psychological, this internal life. So she's talking, she's talking about the future. She's talking about the 2000s, the aughts. She says, the ease of everything still left us briefly stunned and incited people to say of new objects on the market, very cool. We foresaw that over a lifetime, unimaginable things would appear and people would get used to them as they had done in so little time with the mobile phone, computer, iPod, and GPS. What disturbed us was the inability to picture our lifestyle in 10 years time or ourselves perfectly adapted to technologies yet unknown. Someday, would we be able to see imprinted on a person's brain everything they had done, said, seen, and heard? We lived in a profusion of everything, objects, information, and quote-unquote expert opinions. No sooner had an event occurred than someone issued a reflection, whatever the subject, manners of conduct, the body, orgasm, and euthanasia. Everything was discussed and decrypted between addiction, resilience, and grief work. There were countless ways of transposing life and emotions into words. Depression, alcoholism, frigidity, anorexia, unhappy childhoods, nothing was lived in vain anymore. The communication of experience and fantasies was pleasing to the conscience. Collective introspection provided models for putting the self into words. The repertoire of shared knowledge grew. The mind grew more agile, children learned at a younger age, and the slowness of school drove young people to distraction. They texted on their mobiles, little tilt. With all the intermingling of concepts, it was increasingly difficult to find a phrase of one's own, the kind that, when silently repeated, helped one live.